1979, that first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and they are better than ever. With each issue, bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content, honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your grubby little mitts on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We don't want to give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. So head on over to Fangoria.com to learn more and to subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your yearly subscription. With all that said, on with the show. Hi, my name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Bad love, bad love! Ah! You guys wanna go see a dead body? Well, sometimes, that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Folks, we've got a very special returning guest for you on the show this week. Uh, last time she was here, in one of the episodes, by the way, uh, that we know without a doubt that Stephen King himself listened to, we discussed desperation. This time around, we're discussing what may be the most lighthearted Stephen King adaptation of all time, 1999's The Green Mile, directed by the great Frank Darabont. You'll also know her as a former DJ, a newly minted Twitch broadcaster, the only person doing Simpsons cosplay on OnlyFans, and one of the great saviors of cats in the greater Austin area. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to the KingCast stage, Ms. Laura Lux. Laura, how are you doing today? Hey guys, thank you for having me back. Of course, we're we're very excited to have you back. So after we recorded with Stephen King, I think you were one of the first people I messaged and was like, <laughs> Stephen King, listen to your fucking episode of the show. <laughs> like, um, what did you think about that? Because I went back immediately and re-listened to that episode to see what he heard us say. <laughs> so literally the first thing I did was message my dad because he is a huge Stephen King fan. And if you remember from my first episode, I was talking about how I got into Stephen King because I used to steal his books um, yeah. and read them when I was way too young. So the first thing I did was send my dad a message and say, oh, my God, Stephen King knows I exist. <laughs> <laughs> It's such a, I wonder what caused him to, to like pick that one of, you know, he said he's listened to the show. So I, to, to the degree that I, I got the impression he's heard it a number of times, but maybe in a limited capacity. Um, I, I wonder if he was just curious to hear a conversation on desperation or like, you know, I wonder what drew him to that one in particular. I I mean, maybe it's because it's kind of one of his, I mean, I don't want to say lesser known, but, you know, everyone talks about it and The Shining and, you know, the other big ones. So maybe he was just like, oh, wow, that was kind of a, a deep cut that I wouldn't have thought people would be talking about. I don't know. Yeah, may, maybe. It, it's very possible that it's uh, just not a, a book that comes up a lot on the other podcasts that he mentioned listening to or whatever, you know, it's yeah, maybe. Or maybe he was just scrolling through the list and was just like, you know, holy shit, it's and you know, it's not the like like you said, it's not the shining, it's not Shawshank, it's not uh the body or you know one of the the primo titles, quote unquote primo titles. Yeah. Uh, 
Or, you know, maybe he's a, a secret follower of your uh, your OnlyFans and you have no idea. <laughs> Could be. He is he is somewhat horny. When I listened back to the episode, that's the one where I told the story about when I got pulled over with the fake boat in the back of my car. The <laughs> And like the cop, like the interaction I had with the cop about that. And I was like, I cannot fucking believe that Stephen King has heard that story. And I, well, I hope he, I hope he was entertained by it, but you're going to, you're going to freak out when you get to the part in Holly where, uh, where Holly gets pulled over with a fake boat in the back of, back of her car. <laughs> that would be great. Um, <laughs> Laura, something I wanted to ask you about, uh, since you're back is I've, you know, learned from your Twitter feed that you are really big into like racing stuff, mm -hmm. right? I've never quite understood the appeal. Um, and like, I don't, I don't think it's stupid or like feel negatively toward it. It's just like one of those things that exists that like football where it's like, I, I just don't, it's just not a thing for me. I'm wondering if, if you can tell us like what your, what, what is it that draws you into that? So I have to confess if you had asked me about Formula One the last time I was on this podcast, I would have been like, I don't fucking know. <laughs> I don't watch that shit. Um, my boyfriend convinced me to watch Drive to Survive on Netflix. And he was like, you've got to watch this Netflix documentary. It's like a reality show about the Formula One drivers. It's really good. And I was just like, babe, I don't fucking care about racing. And he was like, no, no, seriously, it's really, really good. And I was like, babe. I just, I really don't care about racing. And he was like, no, seriously. And I was like, okay, fine. I'm going to watch the fucking show. And I loved it. I was like, holy shit, this is so good. And I got so invested in the drivers. For me, it's like Formula One, like you, because there's only 20 drivers, it's not like there's 20 teams that then have 40 people per team. It's literally just 20 drivers. And there's so much like politics and you know, just there's so much drama that goes on behind the scenes. Like that's what I'm really into. I still really enjoy watching the races, but for me, it's really more about like the technical side about how they, you know, compete with their, the mechanics of their car. And then you get really invested in particular drivers. It doesn't hurt that some of them are total babes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, if you had asked me probably three years ago, like, you know, do you think you'd ever be a Formula One fan? I would have been like, no fucking way. Like there's just no way that motorsport would ever be something I care about. And now I am obsessed. Braden has turned me into a car guy. Like I'm, I'm fully into cars now. So <laughs> I'd be more into formula one if it was done a little bit more Mad Max style. And we got to see people, <laughs> people like, you know, flying through the air, all, all legs akimbo and whatnot. Uh, one of the, one of the things yeah. I always hear about racing from, you know, both people who don't watch it and people who do is that, you know, you're always like the audience is always kind of not like waiting for a crash to happen, but that's part of the thrill of it, that it could happen mm. at at any time. Is that is that true for you, Laura? Like, are is is that part of the like the anticipation of it is like how dangerous it is? Mm. I guess part of the thrill of watching it is knowing that it is so dangerous and you know you sort of you're sitting there watching it and they're going so fast and when you do see a crash like you obviously feel sick and it's horrible and you're like right. oh my god I hope they're okay and like thankfully since I've been watching it there haven't been any serious injuries but yeah I definitely think that that 
is part of the thrill because it really is so dangerous. And we actually went to um, the Austin Grand Prix Mm -hmm. in 2021. Mm. Yeah, not last year, the year before. That was a fucking shit show. I would never go again. Um, That's a whole other story. Was it out at that fucking place along uh, 45? Yeah, Yeah, it's out at Circuit of Americas. And it took getting from – I live, you know, close to downtown – um, getting from getting home from Formula One took three and a half hours, and we were sitting in traffic the whole time. Like, yeah, I've it heard was it's just, just multiple hours just to get out of the parking lot there. Yeah, yeah. It, it was a sucks. nightmare. I went there for a concert one yeah. time. But like we, that being said, like you can see how fast they go in person, and that really gives you perspective on, like, you know, obviously you know it's dangerous watching it on TV, but you see it on in person, and you're like, holy fuck, dude, that is so fast. Yeah. Some places out there like offer, you know, like a racing experience. Like you can mm. go, like I, I think I, I assume you have to be licensed or trained to some degree. Maybe, maybe in the same way that you have to be like trained to do uh, skydiving, for instance. And you can like take a car out on the track and just mm. really fucking gun it. Um, have you ever done anything like that, or will you be interested to? No, I'm a huge pussy. <laughs> I would like I would just straight up admit that I have absolutely like no desire for adrenaline. Um really? I drive an Audi SQ8, which is a very, very powerful sports car, and I've never taken it over 45. What? <laughs> <laughs> have you not been on a highway? Or are you no, one I of the slow like drivers in Austin? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, I did this uh, thing once where um Back when Universal was making money hand over fist uh, on DVD and Blu-ray uh, sales, they started doing these junkets just specifically for their Blu-ray releases. I, I think I mentioned it a couple of times on the show. Some of the yeah. crazy things I did, like uh, uh, for Dracula Rising, I think the movie was called. Like we went to to uh, Transylvania and you know went up the Carpathian Mountains and shit. Like it's ridiculous. But one of those was for one of the Fast movies. I think it was seven or eight, and we went to Abu Dhabi and interviewed Tyrese and uh and then did a whole bunch of car related things because they have like a uh Ferrari world over there which is a theme park just based around the Ferrari car and uh and it boasts the world's fastest roller coaster I think it goes 160 miles per hour um (laughs) and uh and and you know so little little like touristy things like that uh, it was crazy because it goes. It's an indoor outdoor roller coaster, and uh, in order to ride it, you have to wear protective goggles because it, yeah. once you go outdoors, if there's like a bug in the air going that speed, and it it'll blind eye, you. It'll blind oh, you. Wow. So, so you have to wear goggles getting on this roller coaster. It was it was a bizarre experience. But one did of you the ride things, it? Oh, of course I did. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. Did it do uh, like corkscrews and loop to loops and shit like that? No, it didn't do loop to loops. I think at that speed, like that gets really dangerous. So I think it's, uh, uh, it, it was just like, it, it would go do like the hilly, you know, go up and go down and it'd do like the banks and stuff, but it wouldn't, uh, no, no loop to loops on that one. But, um, uh, but one of the things that they had us do was we went to, uh, a racetrack that they have there and they had all these like fucking billionaire Saudi, you know, oil brats, you know, the children of, of like, you know, fucking kings and shit you know for the different provinces they all brought out their million dollar fucking cars and lined them up and were showing them off to all of uh, these nerdy fucking journalists and uh and then they uh 
they let you essentially we got to speed race a uh, uh a car of our choice you know they had I, i'm not a, a, a comfortable with a stick shift uh, i can drive a stick but i haven't done it like ridden driven a, a stick shift car since i was like 16 when i was like sure. learning how to drive uh so i i said absolutely do not give me a, a car that i can break on this on this thing so i had an automatic and and we would like race uh on the the racetrack that we would get in the, these cars and and like speed off down and you'd like race one of the other bloggers or whatever and uh and it's really <laughs> fucking it was it was it's really you know your heart gets racing because you get into that that car and you're like looking down and like you see the lights it looks like a fucking sega video game right burnout or whatever you're waiting for the yeah. you know the the red light yellow light green light you know cruising usa yeah for sure <laughs> um and you and you kind of look around and you're the car's like built to like roll and shit so it's like you kind of have like that death proof thing on the inside and you're like oh my god you're wearing a helmet you wear that little right. like you know face condom that you have to put on before the helmet and and like like oh my god this is like for real and of course you know i think i hit maybe like 78 or 80 miles per hour <laughs> and i'm like i've driven faster on i-35 but uh uh, but yeah, no, that it, it is really odd being in that thing and sitting where, you know, you know, I just don't trust myself. Yeah. Like, I think maybe <laughs> I could do it as a passenger. I would be shitting myself, but I think I could maybe do it as a passenger if I knew and like trusted the driver, but driving myself, like even on a racetrack like that, I'd be like doing 60 miles an hour and I'd be hyperventilating. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just, I do not trust myself. You're you're frequently traveling to um, what I what I would consider exotic locations. There's certainly not places that I would have the means to go visit. I feel like. Um, have you been to Dubai? I actually haven't. I've uh, I've had a layover in Abu Dhabi a couple of times, mm-hmm. um, and I've but I've never left the airport, so I've never <laughs> yeah never been to never been to Dubai. It seems huh. like a fucking playground. You know, they have like insane, insane hotels out there with like, oh, we've got an entire there's uh, constantly a film in production in this one. And over here we've got like, uh, you know, um, the entire U.S. Treasury is buried out back. Like it's just like (laughs) the the most opulent shit you can possibly possibly imagine. Um, I'd be curious to go over there and poke around. Yeah, uh, I would like to go eventually. I just have never, yeah, never got over there. Yeah, Abu Dhabi of that area is like the most Western friendly. Even there, it was, it was still very uh, strict. You'd see, you know, the the full face coverings for women and and stuff like that around. Uh, but at the same time, like, so no would, alcohol. I I know. Yeah, they have they had alcohol at the hotel. I don't know if it's like available uh, right on countrywide, sure but when I was, yeah. cause I used to fly when I would fly between Australia and Europe, I would often have layovers in Abu Dhabi. Yeah. And first of all, the airport lounge there is the most bonkers one I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. um, Go this on. was with uh, Eddie had airways. Um, and yeah, their, uh-huh. their lounge was fucking insane, but I'm pretty sure we were drinking mimosas in the lounge. Yeah. So, I guess Wait, tell like, me about the lounge. What's going on in the lounge? I mean, it was just the most, like, they had this insane buffet of food um, and, like, <laughs> really, really beautiful showers, like, private little rooms with showers and everything and just, like, the most luxury products you could possibly imagine. Um, yeah, it was very, very, very nice. It's funny how, like, 
a buffet, like a really nice buffet is like, you know, like those are consistent in Vegas, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like wherever you find opulence or money being spent willy nilly, a buffet is not far behind. <laughs> I can't really fuck with a buffet though. Cause buffets scare the shit out of me. One of my biggest fears is walking back from getting food at the buffet and like dropping my food in front of everyone. <laughs> Like literally, like that, that is the, literally the last thing that I was expecting table. you to say that that you were afraid of about a buffet. But please, please go ahead. Right. I'm like white knuckling my plate, walking back to the table because I'm like, please don't drop it, embarrass myself. Like I just have so much anxiety about embarrassing myself at the buffet. Not that I ever klutzy? go to them, but <laughs> are you klutzy? Like, do you drop things a lot? <sighs> yeah. Are you uh, worried about loading up the plate to a degree that it becomes too heavy for you to no, flip back to the table? Even if I only had like two things on it, like I could have a quarter of the plate filled, but it's still just this like anxiety where I'm like, oh my God, what if I like slip over on something and I throw my food and I smash my plate? Like, I don't know. It's like this crippling anxiety I get when I go to a buffet. That's wild. I just it feel is. like, you know, um, like, uh, like I'm a, I'm a heavy set guy. I don't look like I don't know how to eat. It's just <laughs> genetics, but I don't eat a lot in one sitting. And so for me, going to a buffet is like, I know I'm going to get one plate and yeah, there's some variety that goes with it, but like, I'm not one of these dudes that can eat like three plates of food. So it's like, hmm. yeah, this totally justifies like the $75 price tag <laughs> right. of, you know, I'd rather... I'd rather go to a really nice place, spend more money, in fact, but like have it be a little more focused. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I just don't think that the, the the general mission statement of a buffet is like variety plus excess. And I don't think the excess part would work for me. So mm. I would agree with that. I don't eat huge amounts either. And if I do go to a buffet, I usually have like two plates and I feel sick because I've you yeah. know, completely stuffed myself. Mm -hmm. I do like, because I like to try lots of little things. So if it is mm. a nice buffet where they have like, you know, lots of different things and I can just have a tiny bit of this and a tiny bit of that, then it's cool. But again, yeah, it's like $75. I'm like, okay, well, I could have just gone to like a nice Chinese spot and ordered like seven different dishes for that. <laughs> right. Or, or you could have made it like, right. or, or you could have made it. Like I've seen, and I will use this opportunity. I've told you this before, Laura, but I'll, I'll say it again. Please, please do a cookbook. Okay. <laughs> like, I know you're like, well, I don't even measure. Like, I, I mentioned this to you once before and you're like, well, I don't measure anything. I just kind of dump it in there and it all tastes good. Whatever. But just maybe like figure out what the portions are because you frequently post pictures to Twitter of the meals that you're making for you and Braden, And they are like the best looking food photos I have ever seen. In fact, I have saved... Like you, you sent, uh, wait, let me look at my bookmarks. <laughs> Where is it? Oh, I'm not going to dig through all these. There was something you posted once and it was like some recipe or something that you had tried. And I was like, I'm making that because the picture is so fucking good. Your, uh, your cooking skills seem unmatched and, and I wish you would, I wish you would harness those, uh, focus them just a little bit. So the rest of us could. I really, you know, share I really what you're doing. If I, yeah, I've always said like, if I had to give myself just a genuine compliment, it would be the fact that I know that I'm a very, very good cook. I love doing it. And I feel very grateful for that because 
I am in the kitchen cooking healthy meals sometimes three times a day for me and Brayden and I'm having the time of my life in there. So I'm really like grateful that I enjoy it because it makes eating healthy a lot easier. I do plan on doing some cooking TikToks and reels. That's kind of my new thing that I'm trying to focus on. I have, I I don't like my kitchen. This is my problem. I fucking Mm. hate my countertops. I think they look so ugly and cheap, but I've got another place that I can shoot at, which has like a really beautiful modern white kitchen that's going to look so much better on camera. So the goal is to start going over there, you know, once a week and just trying to shoot some like cooking TikToks with really simple, easy, healthy, clean, balanced, just weeknight dinner ideas. So that's Yeah, and they don't look healthy. They don't look healthy is the thing. A lot of what I cook is really healthy. Yeah, it it seems like when you list out the ingredients, it seems healthy. Mm -hmm. But the pictures themselves do not look particularly healthy. They look like... Go ahead. A lot of what I cook looks uh, pretty indulgent, but I'm such a stickler for the ingredients being healthy and you know, using the leanest cuts of meat possible and, um, just, you know, staying away from processed ingredients. So yeah, a lot of like most of what I cook is actually like very, very clean. Um, and you know, really good for you. I've actually lost 20 pounds since December and it's all been from just completely changing the way I eat and like dropping out, like lowering my sodium intake and dropping, um, processed shit. And Mm -hmm. I want to, be able to do, you know, videos being like, this is how to eat if you just want to maintain a healthy weight. Right. Right on. Well, I don't have a great transition between this and the green mile <laughs> of all things. Um, <laughs> but we are here today to talk to you about uh, the green mile. First of all, uh, what made you pick this particular title? And, and secondly, would you mind like laying out the general plot of this for anyone that might not be familiar or needs a refresher? Um, So the reason we are talking about this title today is a couple of weeks ago, I was flying home from Washington, DC and I tweeted and said that I was reading the green mile um, for the first time since (laughs) I was in high school. I would have, I mean, I think the first time I read it was when it first came out. So This was like a big refresher, Um, but I said that I was rereading it and that I had to stop because I got near the end and I was about to start crying on the plane and (laughs) embarrassing myself and making my fellow travelers uncomfortable. And Scott replied to it and said, do you want to come back on the show and discuss it? And I said, that's right. Didn't somebody else reply going, oh, wow, you should do an episode of the King cast. Yeah, they did. <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing that. People are always well. looking out for us out there. It's they very are. nice. Yeah. I do appreciate it. So, at that so point, yeah, we then to... I, um, I rewatched, I finished the book and fucking cried my eyes out. Mm-hmm. And then I rewatched the movie probably for the first time since it came out and mm. cried my eyes out again. It's basically about, it's told from the perspective of a uh, prison guard who is the head guy in charge of um, overseeing things at a rural prison in the 30s, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think it's in the 30s. Yeah, close enough. He oversees death row uh, and the the prisoners on death row where they execute people um, 
with an electric chair. And they get a prisoner in, a black man named John Coffey, who has been accused of raping and murdering two young girls. And they discover that John Coffey has healing powers, possibly from God, in his hands. He can cure people's illnesses. And eventually they discover that he was innocent and he was trying to heal the little girls when he was caught holding their dead bodies. And it was actually one of the other inmates who was in there who killed him. And in the end, they still have to execute him because it was the 30s and no one would have believed that he was innocent and there was a lot of racism factors at play and it's pretty much oh and then at the end um the main guy paul you find out that he is still alive at like 108 years old or something because he was touched by john coffee and it extended his life and there's also the mouse i can't even talk about the mouse without crying (laughs) (laughs) mr jingles mr jingles yeah that thing about him having extended age like i've i've seen this movie before i've I've read the well they were books when when i read them they were that's how they were the first time i read them right it was serialized and you know so i'm very familiar with this story but this was the like rewatching it today was the first time it really kind of hit me the 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 horror itself of like having extended age i i don't i do not want to live to be more than 70 years old i think like i'm good at wrapping it up by that point the idea of living to like 108 fucking terrifies me and i was thinking while watching it like this is kind of kind of a kind of a flip side thing with with revival which you know i won't spoil the ending of that book but here we're we're looking at you know the idea of like not immortality but close to it where you could go on much longer than you're supposed to and that just fucking that that the 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 idea of that scares mm. the 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 shit out of me right. like do y'all do y'all are do you think you're going to feel comfortable getting older like like would you be happy to live yeah i'm so fine with checking out earlier (laughs) oh okay i thought you were gonna say yeah i'm so fine to live to 110 if i have to no i i definitely like you know the old cliche i'm here to have a good time not a long time i'm not trying to you know die in my 40s or anything but and i think another factor for me is i don't want to have kids right Mm. same so I I kind of just want to live a good life and I don't want to be 85 or 90 and falling apart in a retirement home. Right. I never want to reach a point where it's someone else's job to take care of me. That's the Mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. And if you're not going to have kids, which I don't intend to either, like you're not going to have that option. Like, you know, by the time, by the time I would be old enough to do that, all that would be left is friends who haven't died. You know, it's not going to be like there's a support circle in place to take care of you, you know, right. but like the idea of ending up in an old folks home is just Horrifying. about like kind of being in like old person jail to me somehow. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I would just I would hate that. I yeah, I absolutely don't want that outcome for myself. What about you, Vespi? Well, I mean, that's that's the big thing is if medicine can 
progress to the point where being 110 is like being in your like 40s or 50s now or where you you still have the freedom where I could travel you know I I wouldn't you know I wouldn't be risking breaking everything on my body if I just step wrong out of the shower you know it's like <laughs> um you know if if we can get to that point you know then I wouldn't mind living to be you know 120 years old but I I definitely don't want to hit that that spot where like where we're i think this is what we're all getting caught up on we don't want to be essentially institutionalized and Mm -hmm. and either that or a drag on somebody else that we love right and it's like we you know and i've been you know i've I've had a, a couple of health problems you know where you know, I haven't, it's affected my mobility. Um, you know, I've mentioned on the show, I, I have gout and every once in a while that'll flare up and it'll flare up. I had one really bad stretch where it was like happening. It happened for like three months on end and, and, uh, it just, Christ. you know, it, it would wax and wane. Um, but it never to the point where I could just comfortably walk out and, you know, walk to the car and then go walk around the grocery store or whatever. So, uh, you know, and like I, I was struggling taking my own trash out, you know what I mean? And so, sure. and, and I, I've, so I've had a little taste of like what that kind of helplessness is like, and it's not fun and it's, you know, it, it, it is very lonely and isolating, you know, it feels like. And uh, so I definitely wouldn't want to get to that point, but if we could get to the you know, to, to, to like a, a medical era where, you know, we could extend our lives and be lived 150 or something, but we would not be hitting that, that, uh, benchmark of our bodies failing us, you know, until like 140, then I, I wouldn't, you know, sure do that. But, but, yeah, you know, I, I think would be I, fine with it in that circumstance, right? you know, because cool, you get to live longer and do more. That's great. Right. But right. if, you know, it was living to 150, but those last, 60 years you're just fucking incapacitated like that's just that's like torture yeah have you seen those videos of the like that tibetan guy that's like uh uh that's like 120 years old but he looks like uh like he looks like a this is gonna sound very uh mean but i don't intend it to be he looks like a muppet right it's Mm -hmm. like he's essentially you know, he's bedridden, he's rail thin, he's pretty much a skeleton with uh Yeah, he looks uh, like a raven. He's like Yeah, you know, just so that. shrunken. Right, right. And like he doesn't it doesn't look like that dude's having any fun, right? You know? <laughs> it's like that dude's like just happy to be, you know, drawing breath. He's not communicating much, you know, it's like at that point it just feels like, you know, almost an awake coma, right? Where you're just kind of trapped if you're lucky enough to still have your mental, you know. Uh, facilities about you you know you're just going to be trapped in your own mind you know right and we're talking about this in terms of like not wanting to be institutionalized not wanting to be a burden not wanting to be able to but also there's a vanity angle on it where it's like i just don't like i'm not getting better looking by the day you know what i'm saying like i already spent so much money on botox (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i just i don't have a reason to do botox so like i'm just this is it you know i peaked you know probably in my mid-20s uh maybe maybe late 20s early 30s but and this is just it you know it's like who fucking knows what sort of creature I would turn into <laughs> by the time I'm like, like 75, much less 150. Oh mm. my fucking God. I would be off. I would look like Mojo from the X-Men <laughs> or some shit. Like, I don't want any part of that. Like fuck now I'll take a bullet in the head at, like, at 65 before I'll fucking agree to that. It's yeah. just nuts. 
But I do, I do feel the like, oh my god, look at how much things have changed since I was a, a teenager, right? And uh-huh. like, what what's going to change in in my later years? Like, what what's that going to be like? What what am I going to miss out on? You know, society wise and all that. Uh, I do get that feeling, but then I also look around and go, well, you know, the the oceans are going to swallow all the continents soon enough, and you know, do I want to <laughs> really? live to see yeah, that? That's another know? thing. Yeah, yeah. Probably we're, uh... the only thing that I ever get that makes me think man i wish i could like live longer is i'm really into space yeah and space travel shit it just yeah. like it really like sometimes i get really sad just being like man we're never gonna know everything about the universe that mm. i want to know in my lifetime but realistically we're not gonna know anything about the universe that i want to know before this planet fucking implodes upon <laughs> right <own>. right <laughs> i mean i don't think it really matters so you mean like you're talking about knowledge versus space travel. Yes. Yeah. Okay, I'm, cool. Because I was about, about to be like, bro, you, you won't even get in a race car. You're not getting in a goddamn rocket <laughs> shit. No, I'm not talking about like, you know, Elon wanting to go to Mars because I think <laughs> Mars is a fucking uninhabitable wasteland. Um, that's, but I just like, you know, will we ever make contact with other life out there? Like, that's what I'm really into. I'm really into the idea of aliens. So. Mm. Yes, Absolutely. Man, like I'm, man I want to I want to pick up that ball and run with it, but we are here to talk about a prison drama, <laughs> and and we would be getting so so fucking far off track. Uh, maybe come back and do uh, the Langoliers or the Tommyknockers at some point, you know, and oh, yeah. we'll get into a whole alien thing. But um, so this is this is Darabont's second um second King adaptation, and it's also. Uh, his second King adaptation set in a prison. Um, yeah. One thing that uh, I was really stuck on in this, this viewing that I did today before we recorded is um, the cinematography and the set yeah. design, particularly oh. the set design within the green mile itself. It looks, it looks like an actual location. You know, it, it doesn't, it, it's, um, the set has been distressed and aged in a way where it reads that way on screen, but it feels really authentic. And I was curious about not only the set design, but who shot this. And the guy that shot this is named David Tattersall. And I was like, oh, I'm not immediately familiar with that name. Let me look up, you know, what else this guy has done. He did this. This is the same guy. He th- he shot all three of the Star Wars prequels, which mm-hmm might mean everything to you depending on how young you are or <laughs> nothing to you depending on how old you are but he also did uh the majestic with mm-hmm. frank darabont he did die another day uh he did speed racer with the wachowskis mm-hmm. um let's see what else uh the speed, speed racer uh, connection to the prequels like is really right on but yeah. you watch this and it's so classically just gorgeous you, you if you had told me you know, that this was like the guy who shot the Godfather or something. I would be, I would believe you. Um, you, but you tell me this is a guy that shot the prequels also shot green mile. I'll be like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. For real. You know, th- those look like fucking melted sweet tarts of, of movies. And, and this one's just so lush and gorgeous and beautiful. Something also- that I really the- liked visually about the movie is, and this is because I went from rereading the book and then immediately rewatching the movie you know how when you read a book, obviously, like you paint a picture in your mind of 
the setting and how everything's mm-hmm. going to look. This is one of the few movies where I watched it and I was like, damn, that's pretty much what I was seeing in my head. Mm. Right. Like it really was almost like, whoa, like this, this is exactly perfectly how it was described in the book. Like this was the visual that I had when I was reading. Yeah. I, re- I, I remember when, I guess when this project was announced, uh, that my buddy and I had my, uh, Stephen King buddy at the time, he and I had both read the book obviously. And we're like, Holy shit. I can just imagine what the trailer's going to look like. You know, it'll be like panning down the green mile itself. And then slowly like the camera turns up to like see the characters or something or whatever. And you know what? I, I, I'm right there with you where like what I was picturing is dead on what is on screen. When I was watching this today, I was thinking like, you know, this is this is a a marriage between two things, right? It's Mm. it's not only uh, Darabont's, uh, you know, commitment to really nailing the source material, but it's also Stephen King describing it in such a way that, you know, you know, me or Laura or Vespi or anyone else who read this book when it came out immediately recognized it as dead on accurate when we saw it because, you know, because fucking Frank is, is, is following King's words correctly. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know I, what I'm yeah, saying? I think so. Cause even down to the shade of green, right. You know, yes. that was like, yes. it was the exact shade of green that in my head, but you know, he does in the book go to such lengths to describe it as, you know, the shade that limes when they get old and they fade. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, it was just like seeing it on the screen, I was like, that is the exact shade of green that they painted the picture of. So it just, yeah, the movie's very, very visually impressive. Well, it's, it's a movie where every decision is the correct one. Every bit of casting is absolutely <laughs> yeah. note perfect. They could not have found, like, it was like he was born to play John Coffey. Oh, yeah. If, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, he fucking Michael Clark Duncan is, is like that dude, uh, you know, in the flesh. And Tom Hanks, for being an A-list movie star, you know, is able to inhabit the just goodness of Paul Edgecombe, you know, perfectly. David Morse is, is uh, brutal, you know, is is perfect. All the regular, the Darebont regulars, um, you know, that that pop up like uh, Jeffrey DeMunn and whatnot. It's like, you know, it's all perfect. And then, you know, for as problematic as he is, Doug Hutchison is another person who was born to play Percy Wetmore, right? You know, matter of fact, his, his real life problems only make him more right for this role. Wait, right? what has he done? I only know him as the guy from oh um, Eugene Toomes from X-Files. Yeah. <laughs> That's like the only thing I oh, know him Oh, buddy. About. Oh, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Doug Hutchinson is is famous for, you know, more than this movie because he hasn't done any anything recently. You uh-huh. know, there's a reason he went away. And that is he married a 16-year-old girl a number Wait, of years ago. something? Yes. Courtney Stodden. Really? What? Yeah. Oh my God. I knew her. One of my friends in LA was like friends with her and I met her a bunch of times. Like I didn't realize that's who she married. What the fuck? Yeah. Wow. What was she, well, well, this opens up a whole new door. What was she like? <laughs> um, I mean, I met her in a party setting. So 
uh-huh. everyone's drinking and otherwise. Um, but <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's sort of the impression I get. Um, yeah. And I mean, it was in the gay bars in LA. Um, she was, so one of my really good friends was this gay guy that was her makeup artist for a while. And they were like super besties. And I only ever hung out with her through him, but I mean, she was, she was sweet the couple of times that I met her, but I mean. Wait, hold, how old was she at this time? This would have been in 2013. So like 10 years ago. Um, okay. See, I think. Well married. Yeah. It, it didn't. Yeah. I don't. Didn't they get. Didn't yeah. They, they got split up and Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, had amazingly, no that didn't work that out. It was <laughs> that she married. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. You you have had drinks with the person that was married to, to, to Percy per- Whitmore. Wow, <laughs> Percy Whitmore's underage bride. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, apparently her parents signed off on the whole deal. Um, the last I heard, he's doing like acting classes or some bullshit in L.A. Um, and yeah, he's just a gross motherfucker. Like, yeah, in, in general. I, you know, I've always said, cause like his, I forget the name, but that his episode of X-Files is one of my favorites. Cause I was always like, sure. he is such a creepy looking yeah. man. Like he is so good as that villain because he's creepy. And then when I saw him as Percy Wetmore again, I was like, oh, it's Eugene Toombs. And I was like, yeah, just a gross, slimy, bad vibes, man. So you want to hit him. Really just, <laughs> there's the missing puzzle piece, I guess. <laughs> you see that you see that dude's face, and you just like your instinct is to slap him as hard as you can. Mm-hmm. You know, just just a real like just a bitch of a guy. You know what <laughs> right. I'm saying? Like I don't like some... using the word, but he, that's absolutely what that guy is. Yeah. Um, and I don't feel bad about saying it because he married a 16 year old. But to loop back around for just a second to the the casting that y'all yeah. were talking about um i think an interesting thing here is how close this movie came to not being so perfectly cast mm, like yeah. stephen king had told darabont that um he envisioned tom hanks for the role but and he ultimately got the role so everything's great you know he's very excited about that but also like the part was originally offered to john travolta Oh god! Oh, no. Can you imagine the Green Mile with fucking? <laughs> so this would have been oh, like oh my god, fin- John Travolta, ph- phenomenon era John Travolta. So John yes. Travolta A- doing like he, the nineteen thirty Southern accent <laughs> and the primary also, colors era John Travolta. And also, yeah, and also I, I like that movie, but also like um, Shaq was originally offered <laughs> oh, the role no. of John Coffey. Have you seen Steel? Do you know what that is? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like that. Like it ain't great. He cannot fucking act to save his. Like you know, you love Shaq. You love the presence of Shaq. Um, I got nothing negative to say about Shaq, except that he should not be acting in, in <laughs> well, anything, in much as a three-hour fucking epic directed by Frank Darabont. Like, imagine the version of this movie that's Travolta and Shaq, like. It's so fucking bananas to think about. I don't know. You know, God, the near misses we we've had on some of these. So. Say again? God, I wish we had that version to watch. <laughs> we just I peek into it. the alternate <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would admittedly watch the shit out of it. Yeah. 
all the bullets were dodged. I will <laughs> will say that. Mm-hmm. The, yeah, that definitely doesn't you know doesn't sit right in my mind trying to picture that. And and I also think Travolta's a much better actor than he typically gets credit for. Um, I can see him he used to be used to be, but even in this time, like this is, you know, right after the Pulp Fiction bump. Right. So it's in that first five years, like, cause he, he well, didn't that like, counts as used to be. Yeah. Get shorty and whatnot. But you know, I also look at like blowouts, one of my all time favorite movies, and he delivers a performance in that movie that you wouldn't imagine, you know, the guy from Saturday night fever, you know, mm-hmm. being able to do, you Again, know, so used I, to be. That's what I'm that's all I'm delineating here, because I am like I am kind of a fan of late stage Travolta mm. and and I'm I'm saying fan in quotation marks. Like, have you seen Trading Paint? No. no. Or the the movie where he's like a, a like a motorboat impresario who like <laughs> pisses off the mob or some shit like no. he's, he's made like in the last 15 years or so. He's made a number of these like direct to video movies. <laughs> Right, <laughs> like truly heinous, and uh, each one delivers unto us a different Travolta hairpiece that is like each one more ridiculous than the last. Uh-huh. Um, the ironic viewing part of me uh, really enjoys this stage of Travolta, but mm, right, whatever, whatever, like spark that guy had, I, I feel like it's kind of gone out, and maybe another Tarantino will come along. Um, at this stage of his career and sort of like pull him back. I, w- I, I agree with you that he's a great actor, but he's been coasting for a long time. I right. hope that happens again, but yeah, I don't know. You know. Yeah. He couldn't do it today, but like, I'm just trying to think like at the time that green mile was being made, like that, that would have been right off the back of like get shorty, you know, and he, and like broken arrow and whatnot. Right. He's so a good it's actor, like, but it's just not the right. I mean, it's like Tom Hanks is kind of, I don't know if I necessarily had in my head exactly what I thought Paul Edgecombe was going to look like, but when I saw Tom Hanks, I was like, oh yeah, that's him. Right. Yeah, but totally. I don't just... think I can see John Travolta and be like, that just doesn't, like, that's not what I was picturing when I read Right. You need somebody who can radiate goodness, that, that can play Mr. Rogers believably, right? You mm-hmm. need you need a Tom Hanks in that role. Mm-hmm. Um, for sure. Uh, but the other, like, superstar uh, in my mind and the one that breaks my heart every time I watch this movie is Michael Jeter. And, oh, yeah. uh, you know, him as Edouard Delacroix is fucking just like, to me, one of the most perfect bits of casting that I've seen in, in my lifetime, actually. Like he is just, he Did plays they? him so perfectly as, as th- this guy that you just fucking love. And, you mm-hmm. know, you just, you, you, you weep at everything <laughs> that happens to this poor Poor asshole. Like, this guy just cannot catch a break in the <laughs> on movie, death row. There are other people that can catch a break on death row, but not this guy, you know? In the movie, they don't I, – I could be wrong here, but I don't think they went into detail about what Dell's crime was. They don't, no. Right. He just says so, he's, he's sorry for, for what he did and that it was, like, a real thing. That he, right. it's not He's not pr- pr- uh, protesting his sentence and saying that it's, you know, that he's innocent. It's, what did, I did he something. do? He, so something that I really like found, like I kind of grappled with in the book as I read it, you know, there were so many points where I found myself feeling so much sympathy for Dell and, you know, you really like him as a character in the book as well. And you really feel for him. And when Percy's picking on him, you're just like, oh man. But then you have to keep coming back to the fact that he raped a woman, killed her 
burned her body and in trying to burn her body, set an apartment on fire and killed five other people, including two children. Okay, so that's not good. No. Um, <laughs> we can't. So it's like we can't endorse that behavior. Uh, throughout the book, you're really just like, man, like I really like Dell, and then you have to be like, wait, he's a rapist and he murdered six people. Like, so right. Laura, do you, do you do you think that they left that out for a reason? I think maybe they did because they wanted to portray the relationship between Dell and Mister Jingles as wholesome. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it does complicate things. I just, I don't know. Maybe I'm a little more nuanced than the average, you know, theater goer. But like, I it would certainly it would certainly change my opinion of him in the movie if that was more right. prominent. But also, you know, at the same time, I'm juggling two thoughts here. Like, I don't think anyone should be. Well, fucking maybe I don't feel that way. That's that hmm. is exactly how I felt reading the book. I was flip flopping back. <laughs> like and no forth. one should right. be treated like that. But Man, also... like I feel so bad for him, but then I'm like, he's a fucking rapist who killed a girl and then killed a bunch of kids because he set and... an apartment on fire. Right. Like I'm just like, he's a bad person. Like but I think it's really a testament to the writing that it was able to make me feel so much sympathy for a rapist and a murderer. Hmm. Right. Well, and I mean, th- there isn't a statute of limitations on when, you know, somebody should be forgiven or could be forgiven for something that heinous. But I, I think that what they kind of do in the movie is if you notice, they don't really tell anybody anything uh, about what happened beforehand, except for Wild Bill and John Coffey. Right. You don't know why anybody else is in there, like even uh, Bitter Buck. You know, mm-hmm. who's being executed, everybody being executed that we see, we don't know their backgrounds and why they're there. And because that, I guess, is just isn't as important as the the main story going on. Right. Um, but but I, I'm with Scott that, like, I actually think that that wrinkle would have been welcome dramatically. Right. As is how can you feel for somebody like this, knowing what they've done? And how can they, you know, live with themselves knowing what they've done, you know, because that's something that that the character, my memory in the book is like he is a, you know, honestly um, uh, penitent, uh, you know, about it. Mm -hmm. Like he he regrets it and wishes he could do anything, you know, any of it differently. But that still doesn't change what he did, you know. So Hmm. I don't know that that's a gray area that, that you just don't get. Yeah, you, it's one of my one of my favorite things about the book. It's like just the whole Dell storyline because you really do like you just end up liking him so much and like his relationship with Mr. Jingles and you're like, "Oh my god, like I love this guy. He's so sweet." And then you're like, "No, he's a rapist, but he's so sweet, but he's a rapist." <laughs> like it's it's like right. it's very conflicting. And and you know, uh, but yet does he deserve not only his treatment and, or the very bad death that his character gets? He definitely uh, didn't deserve it, that. You know, it's like yeah, it, which is it takes a really strong writer to to be able to make you juggle that and go, you know, even uh, from the reader's point of view, you know, not go well. He didn't deserve that, you know, <laughs> even though if that uh, what he had done. Uh, say happened to you or your sister or your close friend you would be in that crowd with everybody you know saying you know i hope this dude fries right so mm-hmm. man yeah. this is this is really chewy shit because i'm i'm listening to y'all talk about this i you know i had a i had a girlfriend at one point who who was raped 
and uh, I th- I think I've mentioned this on the show where like I won't watch movies where I know that I'll be very cautious about movies that I know have um, rape depicted in them. A lot of the times I find that it's a little too purient. It's a little too like um, sleazy the way it's presented uh, for for my liking. You know, this this is an enormously traumatic event. And if if I if I were ever put in a room with the person that was responsible for 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 what happened to my ex, like I would kill them with my bare hands. No fucking Mm -hmm. not even like instantly, not even, you know, tell me who's this guy. Oh, this is the guy done, you know, Um, but at the same time. I have a lot of sympathy for prisoners. I think, Mm. you know, I have a a lot of sympathy for the idea of like, you know, people who are being bullied, like, like as, as Delacroix is by, by Percy Whitmore. And so I think that makes me a fucking giant hypocrite, but I guess, I guess it is what it is. You know, that's just how we are. Dell had already been sentenced, you know, he, he was already going to be punished. He was already going to die. So like, it's like, that's a way to look at it. It's kind of like the scales have already been balanced. Like, you know, he did his crime. He's going to pay the ultimate price for it. He's already, he hasn't like, he's still alive, but it's sealed in fate. Right. So why make it any worse? Like you don't need to torture them up to that point. Maybe that's no. maybe that's a way to look at it. Mm, I still yeah. feel like a hypocrite, to be honest. But but you <laughs> well, are I mean, right. It it, it 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 changes, you know, when something is personal to you. You if somebody if you'd been put into a room with a guy that they said, oh, and this by the way, this guy raped somebody, you know, twenty years ago that you've never met and don't know and don't know the story, you wouldn't murder that person, right? Mm-hmm. But because you had so much personal, you saw what the act had done to your ex and how, yeah, how it ruined her life. You had that firsthand thing. It, it makes it personal. And that's a, that's a, it's a line that, that is, that is crossed. You know, you can be empathetic um, and judge, (laughs) judge that person. But the difference between I'm willing to go to prison, my own self for, you know, exerting some sort of justice, you know, on, uh, on behalf of of those wronged uh, or, you know, this person's a piece of shit, get him the fuck out of my sight. You know, that that's the line. That's the difference, you know, when, when it's personal and when it isn't, you know? I think also a factor, like, coming back to the movie is, I mean, if they were bullying Wild Bill, I wouldn't have fucking cared. <laughs> right. Because he was <laughs> right. genuinely not remorseful and he right. was right. proud of what he'd done and he didn't give a fuck. So with him, when he's, you know, when I, whatever's happening to him, you don't care. But because Dell you know, he, he raped and killed a woman. Yes. Awful. And then he accidentally killed five other people, which, you know, not excusing it, but he was genuinely remorseful for his crimes. And also like he was a soft spoken, you know, well-behaved gentle character who just loved his mouse. And he was always very polite. So it was a lot easier to feel that empathy for him because you didn't see the crimes that he did as I guess, tangible. This must be by design. You know, this is, this is, we're looking at another example of, of, you know, King's mastery 
of, mm-hmm. of fiction, right? Like that, that you could like the movie doesn't fuck around with that so much, but like the book is the book and that backstory is there and you know that going in, but I felt the same way about Delacroix in the, in the, in the novel. And that's just, yeah, that's just King. Like mm. the, the ability to, you know, inspire your empathy, even when it might not be warranted or it wouldn't be warranted in real life. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really interesting. Much, I guess an ability to just make you see things not so much in black and white, and it really opens you to the nuances of situations. Mm. Well, and, and it's also a very smart uh, narrative tool to show that, it, 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 the impact of John Coffey on the Green Mile wouldn't be the same if we had seen, well, there's also two or three other people here uh, who are innocent or didn't deserve, you know, the, the punishment that they're getting. Right. Um, and so it, it's really smart to underline just, you know, kind of the anomaly that John Coffey is, you know, on the mile. Folks, the angelic voice of Mr. Robert Zombie can only mean one thing. It's time for the mid-roll ad read this week. Eric's going to be reading it to you. Take it away, Eric. We have a new sponsor this week. Yes. We are talking about God is a Bullet. Here's the logline. When a police detective's daughter is kidnapped by a satanic cult, it's never a good thing, but always makes for good movies, uh, he quits the force and partners with the cult's only female escapee to hunt them down. How far would you go to save the ones you love? Inspired by real-life events and based on the best-selling novel by Boston Tehran. Starring Nikolai Koster-Waldau, you know him from Game of Thrones, of course, uh, Micah Monroe from just about every damn thing you love, It Follows the is guest. the one that jumps to mind, and Jamie Foxx, and no need to, to uh, tell you what Jamie Foxx has been in, you know Jamie Foxx. Don't miss God is a Bullet, the late night movie of the summer. Now, with all of that said, let's get back to the show. Tell us what you think about John Coffey as a character, Laura. Oh, man. He, I mean, obviously he was innocent. And I just, I really find like the speech that he gives to Paul when he tells him he's ready to die because he's just like, there's so much badness in the world and I have to see it all of the time. Um, I don't know. I just, I find that speech, like that's when I start sobbing when I read the book. Um, Mm -hmm. That's like, you know, hard to keep it together. But I mean, yeah, he's, he's just a fucking fantastic character. And obviously they really go into the situation with, how things were regarding like racism at the time, which is something that I didn't understand the first time I read the book. Why not? Because I was probably 14 and living in, Outback, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> living in Outback, okay. Australia. <laughs> so, um, I, I was in a very, very isolated small town in Outback, Australia. It was 100% white. I had honestly never met, I mean, I'd never met an African-American person at that point because I'd never been to America, but Mm. I don't think at that point I'd ever even met a black person, let alone had any idea about the, I I just didn't know anything about race or racism. So reading the book then, that was just a huge part of it that I just didn't, didn't Mm. even like comprehend. So reading like, rereading it now i was like oh holy shit now i i get the racism 
part of it and why he was persecuted and why they couldn't have ever, you know, got him off because they just assumed he was innocent because mm-hmm. you know, that's how things were then. Right. Let me let me ask you this. What are what are race relations like in Australia? I mean, honestly, pretty much the same as here. Where I grew up, again, it was it was literally just white people in a small, like rural farming community. Right. So out there And it they wasn't... didn't have their own stated prejudices. I mean, maybe, but there wasn't anyone to enact them on. No, I I guess I I see what you mean, but also like I recently like I'm from fucking Texas, you know, and I I relocated recently. I'm out in Idaho for the next six months. And this place has been this. This is the most blindingly white place I have ever been in my fucking life, especially coming from Austin, which is admittedly more of a mixing pot. You know, it's you got everyone involved there. Where I'm at right now, it is lily white mm-hmm. um, as as like all day, every day. And I've already encountered living up here more prejudice than I than I've encountered in um, in Austin. And, you know, I find that uh, I, I you know, I've, I've it's happened to me before where like, you know, you'll if you're in a crowd with a bunch of white folks, um, maybe there's one guy involved who will, you know, have some shit to talk, you know, about another race or another sexuality or whatever that, you know, sort of, for lack of a better term, a Republican mindset Mm -hmm. um, might bring you to. So the fact that you grew up in this like very white place, you know, I think, you didn't just hear shit like people talking shit. You I know? mean, also keep in mind, this was the dawn of the Internet. Yeah, uh-huh. we didn't. You know, this was the Internet was only, I mean, brand, brand new and not everyone had it out there. So we were extremely cut off from everything. Whereas now, even if you live in the most podunk, redneck, fucking isolated town, you're probably still watching Fox News and getting mad about Black Lives Matter. Fair. So I think people out in the isolated, even if it is a you know 99% white community, they're still more exposed to the racial issues. And if you know they are watching Fox News and getting their brains fucking rotted by it, um, then they're going to have those opinions and have them more vocally. But I mean, yeah, a I was a kid, and b we would we were just so isolated, like. For me, it's not something I ever remember people talking about. And there wasn't, there literally wasn't a single person of color out there. So there wasn't anything to spark that discussion, I guess. <laughs> like, Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, once I moved down to the city, once I graduated high school and moved to the city, then obviously it was a lot more multicultural and Australia for sure as a whole has its issues with racism. Um, I guess it's pretty similar to here. Like there is a, there's like definitely kind of a movement that would be the equivalent of like the right wing redneck shit here. Um, about immigrants and you'd see people with, 
stickers on their cars that would say things like fuck off we're full about people immigrating and stuff so Hmm. yeah we definitely um and we have you know a very shitty past with the way we treated our indigenous people just the same as sure so you know it's in terms of race overall it's it still definitely has its share of racist issues well what's what's funny about this to me is that like all my early exposure to Australia as an American were a lot through the indigenous or Aboriginal uh, lens because we got like, I I got it through the movies. Right. So I was watching Mm -hmm. the gods must be crazy. And I was watching uh, (laughs) even like crocodile Dundee, crocodile Dundee. You know, it's like that it's so entwined there that, you know, it kind of, it's funny to to hear you talk about like oh I was, when you when I picture like the Australian outback I'm I'm thinking the gods must be crazy you know I'm not thinking <laughs> you know white lily white farmland you know you know yeah the um, town I was in had literally fifty people and three what? streets yeah the town that 50? I spent most of my childhood in had fifty people. Well, like <laughs> when I say small, I mean small. Like I'm not. <laughs> 50 did you all share the same house like how the fuck <laughs> what what was the town like um so we basically had three streets um uh, we moved out there oh when i was God. i think seven where is this if, uh, if you want to say on the air it's a town called Carrotton, and it's in the flinders ranges in south australia mm-hmm. um so we moved out there when i was born we lived closer to the city and my dad was studying And when he graduated, he got his first job. And so basically the best way I can describe his job is he was the mayor, but he wasn't elected. He was hired, but he was like the guy who like ran the town's affairs and was in charge of like the roads and the fire department and, Mm -hmm. you know, allocating the town's funds into whatever. Um, but it's the kind of job where when you first graduate, you have to start in a very small town and kind of prove yourself and slowly work your way up to being in a bigger town. So yeah, we moved out there when I was very, very young and, um, yeah, there was 50 people. I think there was like 11 students at the entire school and I was pretty much the only person that didn't have the last name Williams. Huh. It was all brothers and cousins. Like this town was basically, there was a couple of other people that had different last names, but it was predominantly the Williamses. And they were super, super like outback farmer, devout Catholic. Um, that is wild. Yeah. So like I said, we might not have had racism issues, but me and my brothers got very, very badly bullied for not going to church. They were like, extreme Catholics. And the Mm, fact that my family didn't go to church was like the most shocking thing that had ever hit that town. I think that, you know, weighing in on the Michael Clark Duncan slash John Coffey sitch here, I think that it's, it's pretty amazing what Duncan brings to the role in the movie. And it's also amazing the uh, needle that uh, was was threaded, I guess, in uh, by King because th- this has been kind of it's been criticized as the John Coffee is a magical Negro stereotype, right? Um, and it's not, that's not an inaccurate critique, but it's also 
I feel like so much more fleshed out and thoughtful than what the critique would uh, is the usual role that the critique is aimed at. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, So it's kind of hard to shake it, but I feel like King has been, you know, it worked kind of a miracle with, with this role and making him childlike and making him, you know, an innocent without being just a one dimensional character. And I think Michael Clark Duncan further fleshed him out to the point where, you know, by the time you're watching him in the movie, he's just a real guy. And, uh, you know, so I don't know if, if that's something you guys want to talk about. Is that kind of the critique of the, the magical Negro stereotype or whatnot? But, um, um, I don't feel like, I don't feel like I'm in a position to comment on it because I actually don't really know what it is. Mm. Oh, Eric. Well, well, you brought it's, this uh, up. go ahead. <laughs> sure. Well, it's, uh, you know, especially from, uh, uh, very, very smart people have, have pointed out that there's not a, that there, when it comes to white people telling black people, uh, stories, one of the main, you know, crutches that is used is the magical Negro, which is, uh, the bagger Vance character, or, you know, it's like somebody who is a person of color in a white person story that is there to help the white people and, uh, you know, uh, uh, and has some sort of supernatural powers. And, and they, they view it as a kind of a racist stereotype because, you know, it can't just be, uh, you know, uh, an average black person helping out, you know, other black people or an average black person, you know, you know, just being a flawed personal, uh, a flawed character, you know, within their own story, it has to be this other, this like mystical, magical character because white people don't understand black culture. So, I guess in yeah. terms of this story, it's like John Coffey kind of had to be both of those things because if he had been a healer and he had been white, then it probably would have been a lot easier for them to potentially get his sentence pardoned. You know, if he had been a white Mm -hmm. man and they could have shown his powers or whatever, then they might have, you know, been able to do something. But because, and it's it's like when Paul went to see that uh, reporter. Remember the reporter with the dog? Uh, yeah, like ate yeah. his kid's eye, and he was like super racist. Gary Sinise, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I just think you know, so much of them not being able to save him was sort of a critique of the racism at the time, right? Sure, yeah, because that character, by the way, is shown as being very progressive and empathetic. Uh, and still racist as the day is long, right? Mm-hmm. So he's progressive for the time, but not, you know, for our times. Um, and uh, yeah, well, it, it's also by making him the character, you know, literally larger than life, you know, a huge, you know, toweringly tall person, you know, they they make the the point. It's like, well, we can just let him go. It's like, well, then what happens? You know, he's not going to be able to hide. You know, this isn't a guy that can blend in with with the crowd, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, not just because of the color of the skin, but also because of his stature. But when you combine those two, it just becomes, uh, you know, an impossibility. They could let him go and he would just get recaught and and uh, and then put to death anyway. And then they would like have lost their their livelihoods. Um, But that, you know, the fact that they were still willing to do that just based on a moral um uh, moral grounds and it and it's up to him to say like no 
it's like, why would you do such a foolish thing? I think is what he says. And it's just like, you know, he's ready to go. Uh, he has that. And, and it's, it's all underlined. And you mentioned that, that great speech he has where he's talking about the hatred that everybody has, that he can feel it. And not just towards him, but towards everybody else. And that it's like glass shards in his brain, you know, that he, his every moment is pain. And, uh, and yet he's still this, you know, kind of a joyful, innocent, um, There's you know, a scene in the book when they are sneaking him out of the prison to go and see, um, is it Melinda? Yeah. Yeah, yeah when the they're sneaking wife, him out yes. of the prison to go and yeah. see Melinda. And they take him through the back of the prison and they have to walk him through the room where old Sparky is. And he completely breaks down and he says, I can still hear them all screaming, like talking about everyone who had been executed in the chair. And he was like completely freaking out saying like, I I can hear their screams. I can hear them. So there was like a few little scenes like that where they really in the book emphasize just how much pain and suffering he is privy to at all times. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, you know, he's a very complicated, you know, character for being as simple as he is, you know, or or simply not simple as in mentally simple, but just as kind of a simple caricature that he could have been. I mean, to the point where I remember when we had uh, Flanagan on to talk about this title, we were talking about the whole JC parallel, right? John Coffey, JC, Jesus Christ, you know, he is this, you know, innocent savior, uh, but he also then becomes, uh, you know, his own uh, jury and executioner of Wild Bill. You know, he he makes that conscious decision of of uh, of punishing both Percy and Wild Bill. You know, and it's you know it, it it's something that kind of uh, you know it it, it t- it's a twist on on what you expect from somebody who is up, up to this point just been pure. You know, pure innocence, pure innocence, and pure good. Like he knows that these people are bad men and needed to be punished, and he and he did it, and he doesn't do it in a way that it's like, okay, well, that's a slap on the wrist. I'm going to show you the error of your ways. Not in a very Christ-like way, you know. It is, uh, uh, it's a punishment that you know steals both of their lives in different ways. So this uh, is another, the, you know, this is another aspect that I'm hypocritical about. You know, the more we talk about this and like kind of unpack it, I kind of feel like um, this is a book about hypocrisy. It's about like the the gray area. You know what I mean? Like uh, it's that's that's not something I would have associated with uh, the the book or the movie with before this conversation. But as we're coming at it from these angles, I kind of feel like that's got to be part of the point here that, you know, this is, this is a, a, um, a story that is, is confronting our prejudices and um, really rubbing it in your face. Right. Uh, mm. It's a, it's a fucking, this is a sad and <laughs> depressing <laughs> story, no matter how you cut it. Um, and and we've gone over some pretty rough topics here. So in the interest of maybe lightening it up a little bit, um, Laura, can you can you tell us about how like the rollout of this book when it came out, mm-hmm. like the the different volumes? Because Eric and I both know what that was like here in the States. But what was it like, you know, in uh, in Australia? In a town of 50 people, how did you get each? Presumably she was out of the town of 50 people. (laughs) Well, I was out of the town with 50 people by that point. I was in a town that had about 
450. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, you traded up. <laughs> traded up. Um the only library in town was the school library. So they had um the school was just one school. It went from kindergarten to senior year of high school all on the same campus. Um, and yeah, the school library functioned as the town library. So they had a lot of adult reading books in there. And I was obsessed with Stephen King by that point. And they got in the first, it's six volumes, right? Was it five or six? Uh, it's five. Good... Let's call it five or six. Okay. <laughs> anyway, they had got in the first volume and I read it and I was obsessed with it. And you could place orders for books with the library to get them in. And I just had every book on order as soon as it was available. And I would go and pick it up and just read it in the space of a day because I loved it so much. Um, but it was probably a couple of months between, I think. I'm not sure. Uh, let me look. It was six. six. Yeah. Um, chapters uh we can i can confirm that via wikipedia what what was i looking at oh whether how, or not the, it was the, it looks like it came out every month according to what i'm looking at that so. sounds about right because i was at military school at the time and my parents were sending them to i me. know it wasn't like a significantly long time like yeah. I, i'm I don't remember like waiting six months for a book. Yeah, it was the first one came out March 28th, 1996, and it was one a month until the final book in August 29th. Okay, right on. Okay, I must like that puts me very, very young. So maybe (laughs) I didn't read them when they very first came out. (laughs) The they released it as a single paperback volume in ninety seven. Um, yeah, see, I read it the first time. I read it was in the individual right. Series, well, those were around. But... I mean, those stuck around. Those were in like used bookstores. They were they were around. They were in the supermarket and with all their volumes forever. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I have very vivid memories of of uh, excitedly checking to see if the new one was out every time I'd go to the supermarket. I think it was an Albertsons that I was going to at the time. Like I'd go with my mom or whatever and be like, Oh my God, is the new green mile uh, installment out? Like, and be like disappointed because each one was color coded. Each one was a different color. And oh, then I remember, yeah, yeah I remember and that. I remember going and like, I think it was like the third or fourth one where it was go- It went from like green to pink. And I'm like, Oh fuck the new one. I got the new one, you know, and with being just so excited to continue the story. I, I remember waiting for each book and like, I can still like vividly picture the part of the library where I would go and pick them up. And I was so yeah. excited every time I got to read a new one. Oh man. Yeah. No. And that, that's a whole thing. It, again, that could be a gimmick, but it's done with such a powerful story that he, he wrote. I I really do feel like time is, uh, is being kind to both the book and the movie um, now, because it, it feels like every year that passes, it grows an estimation because I remember at the time that Green Mile came out, it was well received. It was Academy nominated. It was like it was a three hour fucking drama that came out, you know, in theaters in 1999 when everybody was just gearing up wanting to see Star Wars, right? And it still made like 300 million dollars at the box office, right? It was this huge hit, but even then it was like, eh, it's not as good as Shawshank, was like my, the feeling I remember being like the consensus amongst all the film people I was talking to. Um, and I, you know, it's going to be hard not to compare the two because it's, you know, a lot of the same cast, same director, same, you know, it's a period prison drama, you know, about, about an innocent man in prison. Right. It's like, I, it's going to be hard to shake the comparisons and say, you know, so I can't say that it's unfair to compare the two fully, but it's also, I feel like 
they're different enough that uh, that they are two different experiences. One's a very hopeful movie, and the other one's a very sad movie. You know, mm-hmm. just just on uh, you know uh, on that basis alone, like it's hard for me to to really lump them together. Um, but I feel like that people now um, have the opinions turned a little bit. And I think that it's kind of a miraculous movie. Um, when, when I watch it now, just, this is a movie that I don't see existing today. You know, there, there's name me a studio that would make this movie and release this movie. I don't, I don't yeah, think it I happens agree. anymore, you know, because it was like, you know, it was a mostly pretty slow movie. You know, it's like right. a lot of, there was just like a lot of storytelling and like there was a lot of the movie where there kind of wasn't a whole lot happening, but if you love the story, then it's, you know, you're, you're loving the movie. But right. I feel like a lot of movies today, maybe they go a bit more for like action, woo. Like, so yeah, I don't know if this could be made today. Yeah, I mean, they don't even like reveal John Coffey's powers. They don't reveal the supernatural part of it until like, an hour and what 10 20 minutes into the movie yeah you know it's like because like that. that's not what the movie's about like that's that's in, in a lot of ways that's the correct the reason why somebody like frank darabont um is so good at adapting king is like that's the king special it's not the supernatural aspect of the story isn't what it's about it's about the characters it's always about the characters and and darabont you know i can see if somebody made this today it would be an hour shorter um, it wouldn't be as effective, I don't think. Um, and they would reveal in the first 15 minutes that John Coffey has powers. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's how it would be made today. And, uh, I could even see, just imagine the studio notes, you know, like you get to the point, get to it quicker, you know? Yeah. The um, Netflix m- version of this movie <laughs> right, sucks, right, right. Oh, sucks ass. Yeah. All right. I have a question actually. Yeah, oh, please. We were talking about like, you know, people getting what they deserve. Do you think Percy's fate was fair? Yes. I think he got off light. Yeah. Really? Because I just feel like he was yeah, obviously a terrible person, but did he actually do anything? Well, I, I guess he did what he did to Dell. But yeah. I was like, you know, did he He's cruel. He's he's the guy he's the kid that tortures animals and pulls wings off of flies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like you know, so this yeah. you know, regardless of what he did to Dell. Like I am an animal lover through and through and through. I like animals more than people. Even something like stomping on a mouse. I'm like, fuck you. You're done to me that kind of you know casual cruelty i find so disgusting like on a yeah, on a that hadn't happened he would have gone off to briarcliff as staff not a patient and yeah. he would yeah, have at an insane asylum to the people there yeah imagine how he would have treated those people you know mm-hmm. um whether or not they're criminals and yeah they do say it's an administrative role but you can just imagine this guy like fucking breaking out of that immediately so we can throw around a baton at, at whoever he's like charged with dealing with. Um, right. I, I say fuck Percy and uh, <laughs> anything that happens to him. I'm, I'm fine with it. You know, yeah, the... I'm a Mr. Jingle Stan. So yes. Yeah. <laughs> Justice for jingles. Yes. Now we, um, I, but your question does, you know, it, it, it is apt and it kind of goes back to what Scott was saying about, you know, the, this story uncovering our own um, hypocrisy because, I think it, the story itself is very anti-death penalty. You know, you're, mm-hmm. you, it makes you care about everybody that's going into the chair, whether or not they deserved yep. it or not, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and thinking that that's cruel, and it is cruel that an electric chair is is cruel as fuck. You know, it's it just you know as cruel they still as use and, them, huh? You know, they still use it. Oh yeah, I I well, buddy, you live in Texas. Like, 
Well, the, I the think actually, there's a, a couple of states that The only state right? that has done an execution, because um, I was Googling this after the after I watched the movie, um, I think it was Tennessee is the only place that has done executions um, with them recently. Yeah. And that's only because in Tennessee they give them a choice yeah. of what method they want to use. And Wait, what is the choice? Can- uh, I believe it's either electric chair or lethal injection, but the lethal injection has been going wrong so much right. that, and it's just causing, you know, a slow, painful, paralyzed, 40 minute torturous death. Yeah. Slow um, suffocation and shit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they apparently prisoners in Tennessee have been choosing the electric chair. I think it's been probably 20 years since someone has been electrocuted, has been, uh, killed by electric chair without having a choice in the method but what um, in that state i think overall yeah really or maybe it was 2013 i think it was it's been a while since anyone maybe it's 10 years i don't know it's been a while since anyone was uh electric chaired without that being their personal choice but yeah apparently like prisoners in tennessee are a lot more likely to choose that than lethal injection (sighs) What would you choose? Firing squad. You don't get that choice. You get you get electric chair. You can still you can still according to the rules of Tennessee, you get electric chair or you get. So you're saying we're in Tennessee? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, yes. Between the two, oh, uh, lethal injection all the way. Um, if it goes wrong, Ah. it goes wrong. But when it goes right, you go to sleep and you don't wake up, and that's that's the way to. Yeah, I'm not taking the chance. I'll take those bolts to the head. No. I'm, I'm not. Yeah, same. I'm gonna. I'm gonna go electric chair. Yeah, there's too much. You know, you take bad drugs from time to time. That is awful. That is like the worst oh, thing yeah. that can happen. To you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like so. So if if doctors, if people who are in charge of like, mm-hmm. you know, for la- no pun intended, executing this are um fucking that up to a degree that you're having a 40 minute prolonged death yeah i'll take the fucking you know well apparently the head son apparently Mm. it's got something to do with i can't remember the exact details but it's something to do with uh like the regulation around the type of drugs because lethal injection is like a course of four different things being administered like there's one that is like a muscle relaxant and there's one that paralyzes you and then there's one that stops the heart like there's all you know different things that they inject but there was issues I think with like regulations around one of them so they substituted it with something else and I believe in Ohio there was like a string of lethal injection executions that went horribly fucking wrong and like left the person like screaming and saying they were burning and like paralyzed for like 40 minutes before they finally died now listen if i'm if i'm you know making this choice and i'm in that ohio prison and it there's been like a string of three or four of those happening right before me then i'm going for the bolts but <laughs> but if it's just a like an, an odd thing you and i mean the electric chair can go just as wrong as we've seen uh you know they don't wet like, that sponge <laughs> yeah yeah it, i mean know. the you got to assume the, um, I don't know, the intravenous, uh, the, the, uh, what's the fucking word? Uh, the lethal injection that they're giving you. Um, you know, you could just 
force an overdose on someone. You know, it could be a heroin overdose. It could be, you know, something like that that's a little more peaceful, I guess. That's what I would have thought. Like, can't you just inject someone with, like, too much Xanax or something? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, and and there's a reason they're not doing that, right? You know, Mm -hmm. like, that would be the easiest thing in the world to do. But now they're inventing new chemicals to pump into people. And I think that, you know, you know, all of our body chemistries are different. You know, there's it's going to lead to situations like this. Right. Or if they don't fucking mix it right. And, you know, that they're they're not like terribly concerned about, Mm. you know, getting it right. Laura, over overall, how do you feel about um, and especially coming from Australia, who, as far as I know, does not have a death penalty. Is that true? I, yeah, I think we, I don't know when we abolished it, but it's, I don't remember it ever being a thing in my lifetime. Like How if anyone would have it? ever been given the death penalty, it would have been Martin Bryant, our one mass shooter that right. yeah. happened in, I believe, 1996. Yeah, y'all um, hemmed that up real quick. Like, you know, that guy went on a shooting spree and then it was like, no more guns. We're taking away the guns. Uh, y'all did it that right. That was such a prolific event that it's like, most Australians remember exactly how many people died and when it was. And like, right. you know, it's because it was just such a one thing that happened. And then everyone went, mm, maybe we don't need to have guns like this. And we didn't anymore. And it never happened again. So do you have any theory on why Americans are more gun obsessed? I do. I do. I think, um, I mean, I think the constitution has a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. I think that I think it's a really complex thing that doesn't necessarily have a good solution unfortunately. I right. think that a lot of Americans who are fiercely patriotic see the constitution as a huge part of their identity and have for generations and they've been raised on that and guns are a part of them. Like it's a part of who they are and Mm -hmm. they so fiercely believe in these God-given rights. You know, I had to, a few years ago, I was having this conversation with someone and they said to me, what does Australia's constitution say? And I was like, I actually don't even know if we have one. And I had to Google, (laughs) does Australia have a constitution? And apparently we do, but you could not find one Australian who could tell you anything that's in our constitution. I mean, right. <laughs> maybe now because there has been a bit of a uprising in Australia of people who have never been to America but have had their brains poisoned by online American yeah. politics. Yeah, that's becoming actually a real big yeah. problem in a lot of uh, a lot of uh, other countries right now. Yeah, yeah, there's quite a unfortunately large um group of people in australia now who fully support donald trump and you know oh for fuck's sake yeah they post pictures of him and they'll be posting all these you know biden's a fucking shapeshifter drinking adrenochrome adrenochrome whatever (laughs) um you know they're like fully into the q anonymous stuff down there now and so you do see Australians now, especially around COVID, because they did have such strict 
COVID right. restrictions, you do see a lot of Australians now who are full on just like my constitution, this is my constitutional right. And it's like, none of you even knew we had a fucking constitution five years ago. <laughs> you could have like literally said to the average Australian or any of these people screaming about their constitutional rights five years ago, you could have said to them, I will give you $1,000 cash right now if you can recite one line from the Australian constitution. And they would have looked at you and been like, do we even have one? Like literally no one knew about it. So how do you feel? So how do you feel about capital punishment in general? I honestly don't know. Mm -hmm. I think, I think in situations where, I think in situations where it absolutely 100% was that person. Right. You know, guilty like, beyond a shadow guilty of guilty without any fucking question. There's absolutely no way they were caught in the act, which I mean, John Coffey was caught in the act, air quotes. So, mm. you know, it not maybe quite in the act, the aftermath. I crucially. don't. Yeah. I think in that situation, if it is what the victim's families want, I may be okay with it. Hmm. But I don't, yeah, I don't really know how I feel about it, to be honest. It's yet another, like, you know, because I'm with you, you know, I'm I'm with you in a different way. But like, like, on the one hand, it's you hear these stories about, like, you know, dudes getting out of prison. And it's always fucking dudes. You know, there's no <laughs> ladies fucking around like this. You know, um, they've been exonerated. By, by DNA evidence that has come out like 20, 30 years after they were originally charged with the crime. Someone had them dead to rights. And then, you know, uh, there's these, uh, you know, charities and, you know, um, nonprofits that have, have sprung up around the, for lack of a better term, uh, capital punishment industry who have successfully exonerated some of these guys. Um, as, as you know, for a lack of DNA, DNA evidence or because the DNA evidence was wrong, whatever. And you got to think like, if we kill one innocent person, doesn't it sort of eradicate the idea of, or or the concept of this being a good idea? Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. But at the same time, there are absolutely people where i'm like oh fuck that guy get rid of him because there's some people that just can't be rehabilitated right right but that i guess the argument isn't about like okay well if we don't give them the death penalty then they're back on the streets that's not that that's not what the no they go to prison and then they spend 50 Mm -hmm. years there and then we're paying for that true uh but you know i i i'm i'm fairly anti-death penalty and i i think for the reasons that we've stated, but like when you're like, when they're caught dead to rights, what does that mean? Uh, could, is it when a cop catches somebody and they say, well, I saw him do that. How, how much do you trust the, the police? If they, what if their body cam isn't on, you know, or like, what if there is no other evidence, but a cop and like a shaky eyewitness saying that I saw this person murder. This right. person. It's like that, that is being caught dead to rights, you know? Uh, but it's like, you are still taking two people's word against somebody else and taking their life away from. I mean, what about someone like, like Dylan Roof? Yeah. 
Um, there's absolutely no question that he did it. So exactly. Like, and, you know, if there's video evidence, I'll tell you this. If there's video evidence and it's not coming off of a cop's body cam. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? Like, if there's like, uh, there's video evidence in the, the age of deep, car, deep faking. If there's a, it's if a, there's footage of a guy driving a car through a crowd of people, if there's footage of a guy shooting up a mall full of people, or if there's, you, you see what I'm getting at, like where it's I, I, unequivocal. Uh huh. Um, it's, it's unequivocal now, but in three or four years, when anybody can just literally fucking deep fake anybody doing anything they want it's yeah, like then but, that becomes unequivocal okay but you if know? there's a mass yeah. shooting like no news agency is deep faking fucking shooting footage if it's like live streaming or something you're you're, you're like if, if it's a live live yeah footage, that, like, that might be yeah. different but like yeah. the second you've got security cameras in there and it's it's yeah. you know there's there's no reason to fucking make this up you know it's this is <sighs> But but yeah, again, see, this like this I'm... there's a lot going on in this fucking story. Yeah, well, I mean that that's why it's such a tough thing, and why I feel like the death penalty, if it exists, needs to be reserved for extremely rare circumstances that we're talking about here, where it's like somebody completely, you know, that's unapologetic for what they've done. Somebody that will do it again. You know, we've taught, we've seen those, like there've been serial killers that have said, you know, you need to fucking kill me because if I ever, you know, if I'm allowed to live in prison, I'm going to kill somebody. If I'm allowed to live right. in society, I uh-huh. will kill again. That, that to me is like the line where it's like, okay, you know, th- that is a danger to society, you know, on a level where you can't ignore it. But mm-hmm. I mean, there there could even be stuff that we're not even considering in terms of context. What if the footage you're seeing of this dude walking in and fucking blowing, you know, a cashier's head off, and then you find out that that cashier was molesting his kid? Like, then suddenly, does that person deserve the death penalty for exacting their justice? Or do they deserve life in prison? Or, you know, what punishment do they deserve? Right. You know, do, or, you know, it's like context has to play a point, too. So it's like, you know, I don't know. That's why I think the default setting should be should be that any sort of capital punishment of that degree is rare. And when it happens, it happens in with those very strict set of See, things that we've talked I think- about. That's, I think, how I feel. Like, I, I might yeah. not be absolutely 100% against it in every situation, but I think that the times that I would be okay with it, are uh, there's so many factors that would go into it being, you know, it would have to be someone who was on camera shooting up a mall, showed no remorse, like, had a manifesto about how they hate people of a certain race or women or whatever and wanted to kill. Like, you know, there would have mm-hmm. to be extreme mm-hmm. pathological behaviors and everything and absolutely no doubt whatsoever that that was the person who did it and that they killed a lot of people. So I don't know, maybe in that circumstance, I'm kind of like, maybe I'm okay with it. But if, you know, for someone who just killed one person and it's, you know, the DNA evidence could be wrong, especially if it's old when, you know, it was when we didn't have the technology we have now because obviously there have been a lot of innocent people who have been executed. So, yeah, I mean, we had a guest on the show, uh, you know, Damien Eccles was on the show and he was on death row, you know, for, for a crime he did not commit. And, you know, it's like, you know, it, it, it's and it's I don't know. It's like I, I feel like that the death penalty is is used 
way too often for as wrong as, as our very flawed legal system um, uh, often gets things, you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm uh, like I said, I, I'm, I may not be as super aligned with the farthest left progressives on totally abolish the death penalty, but I'm fairly anti death penalty. I think and, that's probably yeah, where I see it as well. Yeah. yeah me too. Yeah. I think, you, like I think you've sold me on this approach. Yeah. Me. I think that's, that's probably about where I sit too. Like I'm not 100% sold against it, but yeah, but the I circumstances the would be, there'd have to be a lot of things. But I get the I get the, the instinct as a human being, you know, I watched, you know, you watch footage of, uh, you know, uh, even if just like in protesters getting beaten up and being like cars driven through crowds and stuff. And you're like, fuck that. Whoever's doing that should be hung in the town square. Like I get that instinct right. and I get that like, you know, sense of righteous anger about and again, that stuff. Coming back um, to what we were yeah. saying earlier, if it was someone that you loved that was personally yeah. hurt by oh, it, then you would be like, no, fucking oh, for sure. like, no, unquestionably. But mm-hmm. you know, you kind of have to look at it. That's the reason why the, the family members can't be on the juries of those, you know, kind of trials and stuff, though, you know, for, for that specific reason is to to have, you know, kind of a, an objective set of eyes looking at the case and looking at it. And, and you, you know, you know, that that's the whole point of that, you know, and they, those people still get it wrong. But like, you know, if it was me and, you know, somebody murdered, uh, you know, somebody I loved and cared about, you know, I would I would want to see them, you know. Don't don't give them the choice. Let let them you know throw them in a, a pit of piranhas. You know, into you know whatever. <laughs> it's like you fucking do whatever you want. You know, feral feral wolves. You know, I don't care. Whatever is the most painful way they deserve it. Um, you know, but that's not what the justice system's supposed to be doing. You know, they're supposed to be protecting people, but they're also supposed to be doing it in a way that protects potentially innocent folks. And you know, mm-hmm. just going back to the West Memphis Three case again if you look at a lot of the, you know, even like John Mark Byers, you know, who spent the whole first documentary of paradise lost shooting at targets of Damien Eccles. And by the time, uh, you know, the, they were released from prison, he was an advocate for their release. You know, it's like your hatred can, can blind you, you know, to, to certain facts. You just want to blame somebody for your loss at that point. You know, sometimes it's clear uh, and you know exactly who it is. And sometimes it isn't clear and you assume it's who it is. And, uh, you know, this is, I don't know. But, you know, but coming at it from that perspective is sort of an argument for not doing it at all. Like if we are this fallible as a species, right. then we j- just shouldn't be fucking around with it. You know what yeah. I mean? Like fucking, um, you know, if if X number of people have been exonerated by DNA, if like in the case of Paradise Lost, those films, um, the the West Memphis three trial. Like we can look at this objectively and say, mm, yeah, these guys are clearly innocent. Man, this is tough shit. Yeah. This is goddamn it, Laura. Really why did you have to pick Green Mind? <laughs> like it's it's um. I know we're all gonna have like an existential crisis after this. Like no, I mean, but but this episode is really making me feel like. You know, I am a massive hypocrite. I, I I hate to keep using that word, but like there's so many like each new thing where like, well, what if this? Then I have an answer for that. But also the opposite might be true. And I'm just like, all I'm realizing is that we, we don't know anything. Maybe we shouldn't be boiling down uh, anyone's life to this single decision that we might be wrong about. 
it's I think again it's just like everything isn't as black and white as good and evil or right and wrong there's no, so many there's so many factors in that gray area that and everyone has a different perspective on it like it's yeah we just we really don't have a fucking clue about any of it as a yeah. species like <laughs> and, it, and it's complicated it's like there's the the whole point of a death penalty is it's a combination of protecting society and um issuing out justice right um and but then you look at somebody like even in the t- turning back to the fictional world like the edouard delacroix if he did and he did do what he did do is he a danger to society? Do you think if he had been let out at, you know, 60 years old, him and Mr. Jingles going to live in an apartment, you think he's he's burning burning down things again and raping women? It's like, I don't get that feeling. You right. know, so at that point, it really is just a punishment for the wrong that he did. And don't get me wrong, that wrong is, uh, uh, it, you know, it's, it's the punishment fits the crime. You're right. So it's like, uh, but, you know at what point is it all about just punishing people uh, versus, you know, the intent bloodlust, you know, bloodlust. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, and again, as somebody, I felt, I felt that I felt that rush, you know, watching, you know, the fucking January 6th shit happen. I was, you know, I was sitting there. I felt, I felt vulnerable. Like I was like, Holy shit, this is like really legit, scary shit happening. And is this going to, you know, you're, you're, you know, it's like, do I want that those people hung hung up by their necks for treason? No, but like at that moment, I was just like, who whoever's doing this needs to be, needs need, there needs to be a statement, you know, made that hey, maybe if you disagree with an election result, you don't get to uh, raid our capital and, and right. try to hang hang the the legislatures. It's like, it's like, uh, you know, I don't know. It's like I, I felt that that thing when you feel scared, you want there to be. Uh, something set there as a deterrent, right? You want you want that deterrent of like, oh well, maybe this person won't, you know, hurt me because if they do, they might, you know, be sat in an electric chair or given a mm-hmm. lethal injection, and maybe that's what's keeping them from doing it. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, I don't know. There's that whole angle too, I, but it, it's a very complicated issue. But it's uh, it, it's one that I've, I've, you know, I feel feel very strongly that uh, the death penalty is something to be used very rarely. See, a few months ago, I was watching um, the live stream of Nicholas Cruz, the Parkland shooter. I was mm. watching his sentencing live mm. on Twitter, and he got found guilty of um, murder in the first degree for you know every count that he did, but they didn't give him the death penalty, and you could see the families were devastated. Like several of them had to leave the courtroom when they found out that he wasn't being given the death penalty. So then in that situation, you're just like, shouldn't the families, like they're the ones who had so much taken from them and there's no question that he did it. But then also he's a kid and his life was fucked up. Not that that's excusing it. Like, I don't know. It's just, there's so many layers and like you look at it on one hand and you're like, well, there's this, but then there's something that conflicts it. And yeah, I got really emotional watching the, uh, watching this live stream because I was just like, I honestly don't know how I feel. Like, I don't know if I think he should have got the death penalty or if I think he shouldn't have. And obviously the family wanted Mm -hmm. that outcome, but I, I really just couldn't decide like how I felt either way. Yeah. And I'm, yeah, that's once again, I'm with like Scott in that situation. I put myself in those parent shoes and 
somebody, you know, I send my kid to school and they get murdered by somebody. Um, I, you know, all, all this talk of me trying to be here, you know, or, you know, trying to air out all the, the black and white and grayness of the whole situation. All that goes away. All I want is that person's head. Oh, like that, 100%. Yeah. And, and, and I, I acknowledge that. And I know that that makes me a hypocrite. But, you know, the only thing I can say to that is, uh, you know, is, you know, it, it, that line we were talking about, that personal line, when it when it personally, you know, directly affects you, you know, your perspective is going to change. And, right. you know, that, but that's, you know, why justice is supposed <clears throat> to be blind and why a jury would decide that or a judge and jury would decide the sentencing there. And you I know. guess that was an important part of Green Mile showing us the affected families viewing yeah. the executions. Mm-hmm. Right. And sort of, bringing it back to, you know, in Dell's case where you feel a lot of empathy for him, but then the people who are sitting in that crowd watching him get executed horribly, you know, like they obviously didn't know what they were getting into with that, but those and people they were upset there, by it. Yes. Yeah. You know, they were, they came there because they had that personal connection. And even though we see him as this, you know, polite, harmless old man who loves his mouse, he, raped and murdered these people's loved ones and yeah. yeah it's like when you put yourself in their shoes you're like okay then i would have fully you're like i don't give a fuck about thing. that mouse yeah yeah and then we we see that with john coffee too you know with it, it, he's innocent but you know when uh in it, you know i don't remember if they do it the same in the book but in, in the movie you know you had uh, william sadler screaming out like you know fry him twice one for each of my girls you know uh-huh. and he's yep. just as righteous about it as as the uh, you know, the uh, the victims and the of the other families that we see, you know. Hmm. Uh-huh. Um, OK, so I want to we've gone way long. <laughs> yes. This is oh, well, like yeah. uh, this is clearly a supersized episode, but yeah. uh, I want to I want to try to fucking bring this in on a a, a more positive <laughs> note a, or at a least a, a less downer note. note. Yeah. Um, so my final question for you, Laura, is how do you think you would fare in prison? Oh, I would be, I would do so badly. Go on. So badly. I'm such a baby. I, I don't even like people. Like I've never even really yelled at anyone in my life. I'm a very, very passive person. I don't yell. I don't get into fights. I don't like confrontation or arguments. Like I, I like everyone to be nice all of the time. And yeah, in prison, (laughs) I, I I would last like, (laughs) I would last like an hour. (laughs) <laughs> Would you attempt to like ingratiate yourself to your fellow prisoners? I would probably try to be nice. Like I would I, I would try and be nice and like make friends with people. I would probably try and make friends with someone who was like bigger and stronger than me and would protect me. That's fair. I mean that's yeah, a good I would, that, that's I would a good try plan. And find, like some, you know, real scary big tall lady who would um <laughs> who would protect me how tall are you i'm five eight so i'm not small okay right on <laughs> right on yeah i don't well, think... yeah so what if in that situation you're the big tall lady and you have to be you have to protect right. uh, somebody else oh like, yes i'm not protecting anyone i'm such like yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm such a like fragile little flower but that's who <laughs> you are now if you're in prison you've done something to earn it you've you've gotten hard you know it's like yeah you robbed that, a that bank the new, now you're in prison the persona you know? this is the persona mm. that you have whoever you were outside of prison doesn't matter you gotta day one you gotta be be the tough yeah what is the, your what is your what <laughs> 
<laughs> Laura, what is your perfect day one in prison? <laughs> um, man, I mean, I don't, I don't even know what prison is like these days. You, you've never been arrested or anything. I don't watch like a lot of modern prison type stuff. Sure. Um, um, would I have a cellmate? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I guess like. Have, wait, um, wait, hold on. Have you been ever been arrested? Oh God, no. Oh, no. I've, I've never, never been arrested no. either. Yeah. I've never even had a speeding ticket. Well, you're always going fucking 45 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you'll you'll get the opposite of that. You can get you can get ticketed for driving too slow. So that's when what you'll, I say you'll get. I've literally never done anything wrong. I am like, like the worst thing I could have ever been caught for at any point was like, had I once. Not that it ever happened, but I could have once been busted with like some molly in my purse. Sure, right. but that'll get that that would get you thrown away. Okay, so let's use that. You you got pulled over. You got molly right. in the purse. Now you're right. in prison for five years. Let's say. Wow, that's you know, a hot punishment. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I'm not the I'm not the judge here. I'm just reporting the facts. Damn. Um, okay. Well, especially in Texas. Like Molly would be a felony, which could get you five to ten. So okay. I'm giving you the, the I, I've been arrested in Texas uh, a number of times for shenanigans and, and various, <laughs> you know, ballyhoo. So and and I can tell you that's a minimum five years. So huh. like first day of prison, you know, you walk in, you meet your cellmate. Maybe they're not. Your ideal so. <laughs> is there an ideal cellmate? But no, um, you know, you walk in, you're like, fuck, are you? I don't I, I guess you've already answered this, but I, you know, if my cellmate was someone who was very like mean and dominating, I would turn into a completely passive, like, yes, I will do whatever you say person. Like I, I don't get I, I really just don't have an aggressive bone in my body I don't like I will stand up for myself in situations sure where I have to you know if it's if it's like a work situation where I'm getting screwed over or something I will say hey that's not okay and I'll like stand up for myself but if yeah. someone is actually in my face intimidating me and you know either like raising their voice or whatever I will just completely withdraw and be like okay like I, I'm not a fighter at all. Yeah, I'm, I'm very, very passive. So you would I'm go passive. along to get along, in other yep. words. Yep, I would, I would definitely just go the. I will do like whatever you say. Okay, no problem. Like just trying to keep the peace. I would not like if someone tries to start shit with me. I'm not ever gonna like get back in their face. I'm very, very just. I'm a lover, not a fighter. <laughs> Fair enough. I remember once, one time I got arrested and I was with a buddy of mine and uh, they put us in a, a transport truck. Like we went to county and then we had to go somewhere else. And uh, if, you know, I don't know what percentage of the audience I'm talking to right now. Um, and this was for drug possession, by the way. It wasn't about, you know, I didn't hurt anyone uh, other than myself. So I'm not making light of the crime, but uh, the transport truck has like a fucking divider up the middle of it. Right. And they they load you into the back of it and you're like knee to knee 
sitting down on either side of this divider, right? And so they were transporting us from one, <laughs> like one place to another, uh, and it's very quiet. And uh, I piped up with, I think they could have gotten more of us in here. <laughs> and it did not get a fucking laugh. Like it was dead silent. And my buddy who was like near me, like leaned over and was like, don't make jokes in here. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> like <laughs> fucking okay. Yeah. And uh, that was basically the, uh, I, I think I, long story short, I think I would be killed in prison <laughs> for not well, being able to keep my mouth shut. You would either get killed or you would turn into red. Like I could see you being the guy that could like talk up the guards and be able to, you know, work yeah, out a deal for, for stuff like that. You know, you'd be the, the go-to man. You'd make yourself I, invaluable in prison. You know, I, I would love that, but I don't think I would get that far because I think I would like make some off. <laughs> you know, cause my, my brain works faster than my mouth. I, yeah. or, or my mouth works faster than my brain. I, I, I don't think that. Yeah, I think I'd be stomped to death before I could fucking ingratiate myself to the guards. Yeah, I, I'm, I'd be too scared to do anything. I'd be such a wallflower, you know. I, I would okay, just yeah, spend my time fucking reading. And shit. I would, I would just be meek and hide in the corner. Yeah, I, I'd be meek, and that would probably not be the best thing you can be in present in prison. Um, uh, so I'll either get uh, totally uh, uh, screwed over, or I will be the. The, the guy that nobody thinks about that, that would be my goal. You know, it's like just be the quiet guy that's just reading and, you know, keeping to himself or whatnot. That would be my goal. Just being ignored. Yeah. I would be the person that would just try to be ignored and not, not cause any waves. <laughs> out of sight, well, out of mind. That's my plan. Well, Laura, I, I have to reveal to you now that at the end of this recording, we're all being shipped off to prison. And we're going to we find do? out it's a it's a new reality show coming out on <laughs> Netflix. Um, we spun off from the, the main podcast, but we we think this is a fun thing. And, you know, thank you for for picking the Green Mile today, because this is a great segue into our, <laughs> our, our new show. And that contract we had you sign to come on wasn't about like voice likeness and rights. It was if you read the fine print, we are going away for five years and doing the show. So, yeah, that's well, true. Damn, I guess. <laughs> So good luck. Have fun. Surprise. I'll see you all in five years, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that brings us to uh, a close now that we're here at two fucking hours. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, Laura, thank you so much for coming back. This was this was the best conversation I have had recently. I'm so happy you came back and that uh, we get to have uh, this chat. It was really fun. Thank you for having me. Many thanks to Laura Lux for joining us for that, like, surprisingly in-depth and deep conversation uh, about the Green Mile. Yeah. Indeed. That one went to some very unexpected places. But um, you know what? That's the magic, babies. You know, you <laughs> never know when the, where the show's going to go. Sometimes it may make you rethink your stance on the death penalty. Who knows? It, uh, it can happen. And when you have somebody as eloquent and like smart and funny as Laura on the show, you know, that, that only helps make us look better. So we hope that she comes back, uh, way more often. Like we need her on the show more often. Oh yeah. So, well, let's talk about what's coming up next week. Uh, we are revisiting Mr. Leland Gaunt in the small town of Castle Rock, Maine. That's right. Needful things is back up on the chopping block. 
Uh, and our guest is a documentarian. That's a, yes. I think that's a good way to describe this guest whose work you probably have seen if you like horror shit. Um, and uh, yeah, I, this is one we recorded a little while ago. Matter of fact, we even, you know, don't tell anybody. We even uh, teased it as an upcoming episode that we had to bump. We haven't been sitting on it because it's not good. It's a really good, thoughtful, <laughs> thoughtful episode. It's just one of those that just kept falling victim to uh, scheduling where we kept having guests that needed to have their stuff on mm-hmm. at a certain point or, or the feel of the show and kind of needed to go in here or there, whatnot. But we finally have this guest on, uh, to talk about needful things. And I am very excited to listen back to this one. Yeah, that's a really good one. I, uh, I had a, I, I eventually sent a, a DM of apology, not a letter of <laughs> apology, but for the, because it's taken so long for this one to come up in the queue and it kept getting pushed because of the, you know, people that had to hit specific dates. So um, I'm glad that it's finally getting out there. I think it's a good episode. And uh, I really love this particular guest. So uh, look forward to that. And this Friday, we will be releasing our latest KingCast commentary track for a movie that, well, I don't think I need to explain how much Eric and I love Thinner. Um, <laughs> and our, uh, our guest, well, th- this was on the list of titles that uh she was interested in covering and um well one of the other the one of the other ones was at pupil and i was just like no full-on no <laughs> um but yeah She's so drawn i thought, to the dark side it seems like the dark yeah, side let, of king yeah let this be the the final thinner episode if i can <laughs> if i can help it unless unless somebody uh comes to us uh demanding to do it and yeah. it's somebody I can't say no to, but you know, um, the commentary turned out great. And I realize I have not mentioned the uh, the guest is Miss Meg Ellison. She's a she's an author of some renown, a Philip K. Dick and a Locus Award winner, a Hugo Nebula Sturgeon, and other awards finalist. Um, the author of Finding, or, excuse me, Find Layla, Number One Fan, um, Big Girl book for the unnamed midwife she's written a bunch of stuff uh lovely person and um well uh she picked thinner so we're talking about thinner um <laughs> i can't i have to interject and say that i was shocked whenever you're like like oh you, you told me like yeah we're working on the commentary we're gonna get meg ellison on i'm like okay that's cool and he, and then scott goes it's gonna be thinner and i was just like are you kidnapped right now or are you like, cause <laughs> yeah. that, that's, uh, seems to be the last title, but I, I think we figured out that the secret to covering thinner on the show is to give Scott the option of thinner or apt people and force him <laughs> into always choosing thinner. Yes, that is, that would be the workaround <laughs> on, uh, on that one. The lesser of the lesser of two evils, I would say. Um, but we watched but yeah, that whole goddamn movie. I can say it's that. a spirited commentary. And as you might expect, um, I don't think everyone loved it. Thinner super fans might not want to tune in for this one, but <laughs> um, the rest of you who'd like to see us windmill dunk on uh, Thinner or listen to us windmill dunking on Thinner for 90 minutes, well, uh, sign up for the Patreon. It's patreon.com backslash the KingCast. Joining it at our Gunslinger tier will give you access to this week's commentary track, which drops on Friday, and um, as well as like dozens upon dozens upon dozens of other Bonus episodes, uh, interviews, all kinds of sh- everything we've ever done over on the. You Patreon. could probably fill up weeks of listening just to the bonus episodes that are only over there on the Patreon at this point. Probably, 
Yeah, if you figure like what an hour at minimum for each of them. Oh yeah, a lot of them are you know ninety minutes is probably more the average. Yeah, and that's not yeah, even counting those two and a half hour long commentaries that we've done for for prestigious works like Dreamcatcher. <laughs> so there's yeah. a there's a lot of shit over there. Is the bottom line? Hell yeah, good shit. So, I want to I want to emphasize good shit, not yes, bad yes, shit. Yes, yes, very good shit. So head on over to the Patreon now. Get signed up if you're not already. Come join us. We're having a party over there. We want you to be involved. Um, and I think that about does it for this week's episode. Hell yeah. So I guess we'll see y'all in the main feed next week for Needful Things and on uh, our Patreon this Friday for our thinner commentary. Adios, folks. Bye. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Andley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly.